Choke point. Let's go. 5:20 behind the scenes edition. Chris is the first reporter. You literally? Yeah. So this is exclusive? Yeah. Chris is the first reporter to get on the new 520 Montlake lid and check out some of the hidden features and safety systems. What did you see? Well, first of all, I was got to be able to get up and walk around the lid where it's all paved off now, and you can start to see how they're going to start building things for the new transit center there over the lid. And so it's pretty impressive. And then what I was able to do is I was able to walk down what will become the new eastbound direct access transit ramp to the travel lanes. Workers all over the place scurrying around doing all sorts of different types of things. And then I jumped down. Down into the closed travel lane right there on you the jumped. Tra- well, yeah, because there there's a you know grade difference from where the guys were actually working and where we needed to access uh, the travel deck. So it jumped down a little bit. I mean, it's like a three foot jump. I oh, mean, not not Spider Man. No, okay. no, not at all. Not at my age. Uh, and then I we kind of backtrack a little bit to the west to under the lid to a nondescript door in what appears to be a solid section of concrete between the eastbound and westbound lanes. Well, it's not solid. Inside, I found the fire suppression valve room, a place that could save your life if there was ever a fire inside of the lid. The room was filled with massive pipes, 15 huge valves, each one responsible for a section of the 800 feet under the lid. Two giant foam tanks filling the middle of the space. Washington Department of Transportation, Steve Peer was my host for the day. I asked him if somebody has to press a button to start the system. No, it's actually a heat sensor that, that senses heat and where that is, and then it, it applies water and foam to that area so that we can put it out right away. So just that one area. So, like, you don't have to light up the whole tunnel. It just goes where no. it needs Now, if it's a huge fire, obviously it'd be more than one section. But, yeah, one section at a time. Pierce says the foam is environmentally friendly, and the deluge system can be turned off remotely at the traffic management center in Shoreline. But nobody needs to actually be in there to physically see a fire. It senses it and does what it's supposed to do. And while WashDOT is still perfecting the mixture of foam and water, it's the lights inside the lid that are the reason for this weekend's full closure of the freeway from 92nd on the east side to I-5. Pierce says these new lights need to be calibrated for safety. What we want to do is make sure that the light outside matches the light inside. And to do that, we need to go through under the tunnel. Uh, and calibrate how light is certain lumens for certain different times of the day, essentially. It's a cloudy day, it's it's a lot darker. If it's a sunny day, it's probably its brightest. A little backwards there to think about what how the lights actually work there, because while the tunnel lights are necessary to light a darkened space, right. they actually are designed to match the conditions outside the tunnel. So at night or during the day, say on a sunny day, you're not blinded when you come out of the tunnel into exactly. bright lights. Uh, so that's kind of what they're doing. And the doing. I-90 lid was designed that way originally, too. I don't know if they, they still maintain that system. I think they I think they do, uh, but uh, I, I'll have to check on, on, on the folks on I-90 but what they're doing. But that's the... Uh, that, and they might need a retrofit to kind of get the new technology to do that. For safety reasons, we want people going into what is essentially a tunnel at the exact same brightness as when they left it. So this lighting calibration and the upcoming testing of all the other systems and features highlights that this part of the 520 project is really getting close to the finish line. We are in kind of pre-commissioning mode right now, getting ready to make sure 
like the lights this weekend, that they're ready to go when we open. So Pierce says the lid project should be finished this summer. The new direct access ramp to the I-5 express lanes should open a little before that. But remember, those ramp that ramp is going to start as transient only and then eventually transitioning to HOV. Uh, be sure to check out the picture gallery that I, we put up at MyNorthwest.com. I also put together a short video for you to watch inside and outside the area down there with Steve kind of explaining what's happening. Video outside's a little loud because we're right next to the freeway. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it was a lot of fun to get in there and take a look at the progress as uh, they're getting close to wrapping up this part of the project. It's amazing how much is involved in building lids and uh, tunnels. It goes beyond just pouring the concrete. Oh yeah, there's just so much stuff, especially with this fire suppression system because... Yeah. Well, the lid is right next to Lake Washington, so they've got to have a system that kind of manages how that foam is captured if it's released in the tunnel before it gets into the water. If it, it would be okay in the water. It's environmentally friendly foam, but they have ways to disperse it and make sure it goes into the right sewer drainage system before maybe getting to the lake. Uh, all sorts of little little things like that, uh, you know, the light systems, the computer systems that manage all that stuff. And the other thing that kind of caught uh, Steve yesterday off off guard, we were down there, is there there's this giant red and white kind of striped gate like one you might get to at a parking lot where it comes down in front of you oh, you yeah. pay and then you park and he's like well, and I'm like I looked at that and it reminded me instantly of I-90 in Montana where they can block the road for like if the pass is closed so I looked at him I go well this is probably if there's a fire in the tunnel that blocks traffic from going any further. So they actually have a big cross, a right. crossing gate there that would actually prevent you from getting into the tunnel uh, if there were uh, the deluge system were activated or if there was a crash. They can control the traffic there a little bit. That's there on the side of the road. If you're going eastbound, uh, you can see it before you get in the tunnel. If you're going westbound, it's on the left-hand side of the road right before you get into the lid as well. So, yeah, all sorts of little kind of fun stuff. Are they installing those giant jet engine fans like they have on I-90? I did not see those in there. This is more just a straight deluge system uh and i didn't see the giant fans but there are some there's certainly some in there and i'll check with uh i could check with steve right now just to see what they have but yeah nothing like the the giant ones that i saw that they installed on i-90 when i got to go inside the i-90 lid a couple years ago which was also really fun that's the other reason for the 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 cost of these projects the the safety systems because i remember i mean growing up in new york you go through tunnels all the time right the holland tunnel oh yeah these are they just would bore a hole in the ground. I don't know if it's been retrofitted for anything, but basically the calculation there was if if there's like a crack in the ceiling or a giant uh, fuel truck catches on fire, that's your last commute. Yeah, you're uh, on your own. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, and no, but the, and it's again, it's a much different, you know, different time, different thoughts yeah. uh, to help us get in and around. So yeah, it's pretty cool. The, I, 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 there's some pretty good pictures in there uh, up at northwest.com, and yeah, so that's why they're closing this weekend. Again, I didn't mention the times: 11 p.m. Friday night to 5 a.m. Monday. Full closure of 5:20, so they can start testing these systems. One more transportation item: Boeing is making its first leadership change since the in-flight door plug incident. With one of the heads of the 737 MAX program now leaving the company, here's CBS News correspondent Chris Van Cleve. The company is replacing the vice president in charge of 737 production. After about 18 years on the job, Boeing announced that Ed Clark, who is the vice president and general manager for the 737 program and its Renton production site, will be leaving Boeing and replaced by 
the VP of 737 Delivery Operations. Chris, I want to ask you, how how big a deal is that? Uh, As uh, was pointed out on the Gian Ursula show yesterday, this is like the 49ers firing their defensive coordinator after Kyle Shanahan, the head coach, made a whole bunch of bad decisions. Uh, You know, it's an underling. Mm -hmm. It was certainly at, you know, at the top of the food chain in Renton, uh, but it's something that sends a message, but I don't think they're done. There's there's some decisions there that need to get this company back to less bean counters and more engineers. Uh, though he was, you know, he was an engineer or yeah. is. But have we heard uh, from the guy whose job it was to put the bolts in? Uh, that would be uh, most likely an IAM seven five one machinist, yeah. uh, and probably. Uh, probably been told by leadership there especially going into a contract session next week next month that uh, to not talk about how that happened but i'm sure they're talking to the faa and the ntsb about that uh, to nail down exactly who did or didn't do that particular uh, worksheet right now we're going to talk about mental health there is a pilot program happening within the university of washington's department of psychology and behavioral sciences which focuses on depression among older people it's called do more feel better. And we talked to one of the lead researchers of the study, Dr. Patrick Rao, who says the program is based on depression self-management, where people over the age of 60 are given the tools to help other older adults talk through and process their feelings of depression. And so uh, Colleen and I asked Dr. Rao to describe some of the methodology behind the study. It's a really powerful technique that's called behavioral activation, which is basically helping older adults tune into activities that are rewarding and enjoyable to them or give them a sense of accomplishment. But maybe they've stopped doing since becoming depressed because they're not motivated, they're tired, and they're not feeling themselves. Mm. So the program helps them to kind of reengage slowly with some of those activities. And that's why it's called Do More, Feel Better. I get it now. Yeah, I found that a pretty attractive slogan, Do More, Feel Better. Yeah. But I, I guess when you're depressed, easier said than done, right? Yeah. I mean, there, this involves actually getting up and doing something. Yes. Yeah, that's why it's important to start very slowly and to take some baby steps. You know, a common presentation of depression would be somebody who is feeling low and not motivated and and low energy and maybe is not just not getting going in the morning and they're sitting around in their pajamas or their nightgown. And the program helps get them back into a routine that might be to get them going. So to start something like making a phone call or taking a walk if, if that was something that was enjoyable to them or some kind of hobby. And the layperson or the peer on the other side of the phone, how are they getting that person to do that? Well, yeah, there's an art to that. They're helping them. They're having this discussion about what depression is and how starting slowly with this strategy can help them. And they're helping them to brainstorm some activities that are important to them and rewarding and then helping meeting them with them every week and helping them plan and set some goals for the next week, kind of like a medical appointment. So Tuesday at nine in the morning, here's what I'm going to do for 15 minutes. And I'm going to see if that's a mood booster for myself. Mm-hmm. Have the results from other locations you're working with, Florida and New York, seen similar results? Yes. And yeah. what are those results? Success? <laughs> yes. Um, well, we have a lot of data showing that this is a feasible approach. First of all, that we can train our lay volunteers to do this and they can stick to the program. And um, information that 
older adults with depression find in an acceptable program and they engage in it. And we're getting some good results showing that their depression is improving and their quality of life is improving as well. And it compares favorably with talk therapy then? It does. Really? Yeah. And what does it cost? Less? (laughs) Less? <laughs> well, it, at this point, this is a free program funded by the National uh-huh. Institute of Mental Health. Um, my vision is once we've determined that it's effective um, and evidence-based, that this is something that senior centers through the country or other aging care um, service settings can kind of pick up and run by themselves. Yeah. That's incredible. So yeah. do more, feel better. Is part of it removing – because I, I know that when you're when you're feeling depressed – and you know you should do something, you're very good at coming up with excuses <laughs> for not doing it. Yes. Yeah. Right? Like, yes. not just that I don't feel well, but oh, it'd be too complicated, or they won't answer the phone if I try to call, or the food bank doesn't need me, things like that. Yeah. So what do you do to get over that hump? Yeah. Well, I think it gets back to starting small and slowly. It's and not incremental approach. Incremental approach. And so just getting dressed might be a step. It could be a really important step, yeah. We're hearing from you, Deb Researcher, with the Department of Psychology and Behavioral Sciences, Dr. Patrick Rao. He is leading a study of depression in older Americans. The program is called Do More, Feel Better. Dr. Rao also described that there is a huge gap in the current medical field between adult mental health needs and the services available to help them. There are very few trained professionals who are available to meet their mental health needs. And in addition, there's a lot of stigma. You know, and older adults in particular might um, not be aware that they're experiencing a low mood that's and low energy. And is this my my heart problem or is this depression? And there's stigma about getting help. Mm -hmm. So this is an approach that if it's integrated into settings like senior centers could also destigmatize getting help. There's a lot of shame involved with accepting a diagnosis like that And, and telling people that you're getting help. Where does that come from? And and why is it so rampant in that population? Well, I think stigma is, um, can affect all of us regardless of how old that uh, how old we are. But I think some generations, older generations kind of feel like it might be a character flaw mm-hmm. to admit that we're feeling sad or that we need help mm-hmm. or a personality problem. Was it difficult to get participants to even come forward? Um, research does show that if you identify depression in older adults and you offer them a referral, many say thank you, but no thanks. Wow. But for this program, we're getting really good success of people agreeing to try this out and participate. That's good. So how many do you have? That is a good question. I'd have to check my, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, I, I don't think it's said in here. What's the timeline then? When do you think you'll have reportable results? Yeah, we have about another year or so of the study. And at that point, we'll combine all of our Seattle, New York City, and uh, Florida data and have um, more definitive results on the effectiveness of this program. I want to talk just briefly about just depression and and mental health overall Mm -hmm. post-pandemic. Still so much suffering, even more suffering than pre-pandemic. What are you seeing out there and what advice would you give to somebody listening who is afraid to take that first step to get help? Yeah, I think with the pandemic, we've seen a lot more um, social isolation and there have been necessary kind of physical distancing requirements that's created um, much more loneliness. And we've seen that highlighted in the Surgeon General's report also. Yeah, it's a national crisis, isn't it? Loneliness. Yeah, it was declared a national crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And it's particularly relevant for older adults Mm. um, that who are more at risk for being socially isolated and feeling not connected to other people. 
And so what can somebody do? Well, I think that this is a program that can help even um, isolated people without large social networks get in touch with what's important to them and find creative ways of feeling connected to other people. All right. So check it out. How can somebody find you? Um, DMFB at UW.edu. Okay. Sounds good. Do more, feel better. Mm -hmm. I get it. (laughs) We're doing it right now. (laughs) Patrick Rao, professor of psychology at the University of Washington. Thank you so much for uh, your work on depression and older adults. Thank you. And it's time for your daily dose of kindness. It's brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Surviving 100 days in the burn zone after wildfires devastated Lahaina, three-year-old cat Mahina has been rescued by heroes with the Maui Humane Society and reunited with her family. CBS's Nora O'Donnell with that story. Meet Mahina. She was missing for months after wildfires ravaged her family's home in Hawaii last year. Her owners eventually gave up hope of finding her after they moved thousands of miles away to Montana. The three-year-old cat survived in the burn zone for 100 days before she was rescued by the heroes at the Maui Humane Society. Last week, Mahina was reunited with her family. The nonprofit covered the cost to fly her all the way to the mainland, and her owner had this message for Mahina's rescuers. Thank you so much, not even just for my kitty, but for all the other animals out there that they have rescued from this fire, just reuniting families and bringing hope. It's a beautiful thing. As the Maui Humane Society puts it, it takes a village. I love this story. Meow and forever. (laughs) CBS is Nora O'Donnell. And now from the Jean Ursula show, freshly arrived from Tacoma. Here is G. Scott. My Good brother. morning. Good morning, brother. Good morning. So Washington State, we we, we talked when this uh, whole Pac-10 thing, Pac-12 thing happened. Uh, what was Washington State going to do? Mm-hmm. And uh, now apparently they're talking about serious budget problems. How, yeah, how yeah, bad are. is it? Yeah, it's it, it's it's going to be bad. Um, but I'm only I'm only willing to talk about this topic if people are willing to admit. Now, because before they wouldn't, now admit that football is very important to the bottom line of a lot of universities in this country, right? And the model of football. And what is the model? The model is there's a bunch of young men out there on the football field that don't get paid to play this sport while uh, universities, college coaches, and TV make a lot of money. So if we're willing to admit that, because you have no choice but to admit it, because Washington State was already $100 million in the red, now things can get worse. So how did this all get here in the first place? Well, here's a history lesson. The Pac-12 schools, when they signed on with a deal years ago the, for the uh, Pac-12 schools and they wanted to make a Pac-12 network, the deal with that and the reason why they signed off is because each school was expected to receive $20 million annually from the Pac-12 network. Guess what, Dave? What? That never happened. What? They were at least 30% below that, right? So the whole Pac-12 network deal, that didn't work. And then there was going to be a deal possibly with the Pac-12 and ESPN going forward. The problem is, is that schools like UCLA and USC, who are powerhouses, was like, "Mm, we see the Big Ten over there. We can go over there and get way more, more money, money. Yeah. and we see where college football is heading towards. So we're going to get up out of here. 
when they leave, other schools are like, oh, well, if you guys are leaving, I think we're going to leave too. So then you have five of these schools just start up and leave. Now, we thought that UW and we thought that Oregon were going to stay, right, and kind of work this thing out. They themselves saw the money in that situation. So first, I want to just say this. Washington State is in this situation because, A, number one, they trusted that the conference would stay together. And, B, the people in the conference was like, nah, we're up out of here. And so now they're left holding the bag. I My heart goes out to any Washington State alums and people affiliated with the school because it's not cool at all. But at the same time, even before this, Washington State was in the red, like a lot of universities sometimes, in the red with these things. Let's talk about it real quick. Revenue brought in by a school, the athletic department, the University of Washington, um, they rank 25th in the country among school bringing in revenue. Washington State ranks 53rd among schools. And just so you know, UW um, brought in $150 million. Washington State brought in $80 million. Oh, there's a school that was number one. That was Ohio State. They brought in. They <laughs> brought heard in. Of them. Yeah, they brought in two hundred and fifty oh, million dollars. Whole but, different category. <laughs> so let's sum it up. Yes. When we say dire, and that was the headline in this, that Washington State's in a dire situation. So how's this going to be fixed? How do you fix something when you have built a model on this? It reminds me of. Let's just say you get a raise at work, and now you're making more money, right? Mm-hmm. You're making more money than ever before. Mm-hmm. It's probably not a good idea to lift and raise your expenses way right. up to match how much you're making. Because if for some reason you lose the ability to right. make that money, right, finances one-on-one. You got a big gap. You got a big gap in potential deficit. So they have to reduce their expectations for their football program. They have to go back to football just being a you know casual sport that people play and go back to teaching people like academics. Are, is that what you guys want? Is that what Washington... Now, I'm not speaking for Washington State just, fans. I'm just saying, what, or else alumni, you what else are you going to do? Is that... That's what you have to do. Yeah. It's, not, it's not even what you want to do. It's like if... My wife, who, happy birthday to my wife today, I just want to tell her happy birthday. If my wife wants to go eat out at a fancy restaurant, Mm -hmm. and I say, hey, we can't do that anymore. I ain't got the money. Hey, I came from a school that proves that life can exist without a, you know, a competitive football team. So, what the heck? So, so here's the the conversation, Sully, that we're going to have to have, and you got that smirk on your face going forward. Which, which, which is it? What are you smirking about? All sorts of things. Because as I'm hearing your discussion of things, uh, G, I, I'm thinking, God, that sounds an awful lot like the way the legislature does things. <laughs> <laughs> when we don't have the money, or when we're flush with money, we spend, 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 spend. Yeah. Never save anything for a rainy day, which could never happen. Very good. But, so, Dave, yes. this is a conversation that people can have at their dinner tables going forward. Yes. Like you said, which is it going to be? Do you want to continue with the model mm-hmm. of football bringing in all your revenue and then pretending that football isn't a big deal? Right. Or do you want to go back to how things used to be and go about education? Yes. Right. And, and, and where you start putting more money in, in, into your your school, the chemistry labs, and yeah, not trying absolutely. to put all this money to the football Wazoo stadium. Be, become the, right? the Harvard of the West. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. So that's a choice you got to make. 
Thank you, Gene. Gene Ursula. That was dirt on Sully. No, thank you. Sir. He's a little too I'll happy. I'll be here all day. A little too happy. <laughs> <laughs> no charges for a Seattle police officer who hit and killed a woman in a crosswalk last January. Cars News Radio's Kate Stone is here with the latest details. Kate? Yes, this has been a case that has been going on since last January. Officer Kevin Dave was responding to a drug overdose call in the South Lake Union neighborhood. He was going 74 miles an hour, according to an SPD report, in a zone that is 25 miles per hour when he hit 23-year-old John V. Kendula in a marked crosswalk. Now, there are differing accounts of exactly if he saw her, if she saw him. Some witnesses told police that they didn't see each other, that he didn't have time to break when she was trying to get through the crosswalk. She may or may not have heard the siren. He did have his sirens on at the time. But this has been an ongoing investigation. The King County Prosecutor's Office opened a criminal investigation to see if there was any criminal liability from Kevin Dave, but we actually got body cam video that was released from the Seattle police that kind of shows the moments after the crash. Slammed on my brakes instead of staying back where she should before crossing. So that's actually Kevin Dave responding to it. And you can kind of see in the video that he's very distraught about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it was clearly not something, you know, expected. And, and other officers at the scene actually tried to save Candula. They performed CPR on her. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, Unfortunately, they were not able to revive her. Well, this has finally come to a conclusion. The King County Prosecutor's Office yesterday said that they have reviewed all of the footage They hired an outside agency to reconstruct the scene, and they determined that there is not enough evidence to charge for a criminal liability. Mm -hmm. So in this case, they would have charged somebody with a felony for reckless endangerment. But Amy Friedman is with the King County Prosecutor's Office Felony Traffic Unit. She says that evidence just isn't there. If somebody is negligent and causes the most catastrophic of consequences, it is not a felony in our state. So while this part of the investigation is over into Officer Dave, you may remember that there was a second part of this that actually generated international outcry in the situation because there was another officer, Officer Dan Otterer, who was charged with giving Dave a sobriety test to make sure that he was not impaired. And he was caught on body cam making comments about Candula's death just hours later. $11,000. She was 26 anyway. She had limited value. So those comments, he says, were taken out of context and misinterpreted. He was talking to Seattle Police Officer Guild President Mike Solon Otter as the vice president. But those comments went worldwide. The government of India, which is Kandula's home country, actually talked about it and they condemned it. And now Otter is actually facing a disciplinary hearing next month to determine if he should be suspended or fired after the civilian-led Office of Police Accountability Office said that he violated SPD conduct. Now, to be clear, Lisa Mannion, the King County prosecutor, says criminally they're not involved with Otter at all. As egregious as his comments are, they do not change the PAO's legal analysis into the conduct of Officer Dave. So the two cases are separate. The prosecutor's office is not considering criminal charges against Otterer, but now a, a Chief Adrian Diaz with SPD is holding a disciplinary hearing with top brass to determine 
if he should be terminated or suspended for a month without pay, which is the harshest penalty you can have short of being fired. So it sounds like he's in more trouble than the person who hit the woman. He has a chance to plead his case at the disciplinary hearing, but yes, when OPA or the Office of Police Accountability determines that you have violated policy, that definitely moves it up the chain. So back to the officer who actually hit the woman. He, yes. So he basically, he was on the on the way to an emergency, right? He was on his way to a drug overdose call, yes. Okay, so that's well, that's a bona fide emergency. That's a life and death type of thing. Well, and he had his he had lights and siren on, and and this is one of those unhappy accidents. Well, the way the prosecutor's office put it, if you heard from that soundbite, is there was you know they they mentioned the word negligence, mm-hmm. but it doesn't rise to the level of criminal act, which is why he has not been charged. However, there is a rally from community leaders that is happening on Friday outside the West Precinct because they believe he should have right. been criminally charged or at the very least face some discipline from SPD and right now we don't know if that's happening. So they did find that there may have been negligence or there was They didn't come out and say that necessarily but again as you heard from the soundbite they mentioned the word negligence. Right, but I'm I'm curious did, did in covering this was there any mention of what the officer could or should have done differently? There, uh, there again. There are differing accounts because, as you said, officers are allowed to use speed when responding right. to an emergency call. And that's why we have this controversy over chasing people. Correct, correct. It was a a South Lake Union neighborhood. Again, the t- the twenty five mile an hour speed zone. This is where things sort of get a little bit murky because the arguments on some, including some in the law enforcement community, said that he should have exercised more caution, even if it was yeah. an emergency, because going almost 75 in a 25 mile per hour yeah. zone it, even if she had heard the siren it would have been difficult if she was in the middle of a crosswalk Absolutely. to get out of the way one more question was yes. it one of those unsignaled side uh, crosswalks or one of the ones that had the flashing lights that you can press you know i actually that it, it does not have the flashing it lights there is no but it is obviously painted with it's the white painted right it's it one was... of those spots where you come up where you've got those limited sight distances right. too where you go yeah. up and down the hill uh there that, that that is a really nasty intersection for pedestrians anyway then you right. add the speed into it right um yeah and, and there, well, there's some possibility that she may have been wearing airpods but even then it would have been a, it would not have been a direct right. line of sight so if she'd heard the siren she would have had very little time to react if she was in the middle of that crosswalk is it time to take that crosswalk out then if, if you're Saying it's limited sight line. Maybe that's a that, bad that, place that one for a always, though, those ones always scary, especially coming up from yeah. downtown. Up, you get over the rise, and there's crosswalks like right there. Yeah, I mean, even going twenty twenty five, that those those seem with all the construction though, and everything that's changed down there. You know, you got to find the crosswalk somewhere. But yeah, I think that's one that those all need the flashing lights. It's certainly generated <laughs> a conversation because even going, I mean, that's freeway speed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the the ability to stop in that kind of a situation is you know, limited. Kyra News Radio's Kate Stone. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. We're going to check in with our state legislative reporter, Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. Republicans are making claims of electioneering and also the issue of what the legislature might do to bail out WSU's athletic department. Matt? Well, good morning, us. Dave. Yeah, it's a big day for the legislature. Uh, this is the first big day where the House and the Senate will be start passing the bills, the final passage of bills uh, in their respective chambers. So yesterday was the policy cutoff day. They had to have all the policy bills 
out of the committee by yesterday. And then one of the bills I'll be watching uh, will be this $200 rebate for low-income utility customers using money from the Climate Commitment Act. That's where the oil companies raise their prices to cover their pollution payments. Now, in the Senate, there's a bill proposed by the Democrats that gives a rebate to people regardless if the initiative to repeal the Climate Commitment Act uh, Act passes in November. So $200 before the a vote. Now, on the House side, there's a, the bill that says you'll get $100 before the November vote. And if the initiative doesn't pass, meaning it would be repealed, it would it would doesn't be repealed, you get $100 after that vote. But if the initiative does pass, you don't get the $100. Now, Republicans like House Minority Leader Drew Stokesbury says that's just unethical electioneering. To send hundreds of dollars to to people uh, right before and right after an election where the second payment is based on how they vote in the election, um, that, that, that is really suspicious. Uh, I don't think a sign of good government. Yeah, that is a, <laughs> is a little bit creepy. So what do the Democrats say uh, in response to that? Uh, that's the, they're, they're not saying anything, Dave. That's the uh. interesting part because the Republicans held like what we have a press briefing yeah. where you can ask the leadership Democrats this week. Now oh, they're quiet. They're not even answering any questions about mm. this at once they announced this uh, bill on the house side, which was a hundred after the election. So we don't have a democratic response for that. Um, but next week also the house and the Senate will be having joint committee hearings on those initiatives, three of them that they're going to have, they're, they're considering on passing, Right off the floor, uh, that's the long-term care tax, the Parents' Bill of Rights, and restoring the police pursuit laws. And Republicans have said that if those bills get to the floor in both the House and the Senate, they'll vote for them all. Here's what Republican Representative Chris Corey did on the long-term care tax. I actually took the language from the Washington CARES website, stripped it of the state's name, and sent it off to the Office of the Insurance Commissioner and said, would this type of marketing be allowed and would this program be allowed in Washington State? They came back with an absolute no, and I said, well, it's Washington CARES, this is the program we're offering. And they said, oh, well, in that case, we were not written in to regulate it. So that is why we wouldn't be doing anything with that. I think it just highlights the underlying issue with the whole program. Okay, so hang on, hang on a second. There's, so they're saying that the under the laws of Washington State, if a, if a private provider came out with a program like this, they would be told, sorry, you can't do that? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. The, the Republicans have been saying that from the very beginning. But the insurance commissioner won't oversee this program. That's specific in the language. So the missioner, uh, an insurance commissioner, has to be mum on it. Yeah, and and so that's that's their argument. Now that yeah, and their assumption that you know these that uh, I should point out that the Speaker of the House, Democrat Lori Jenkins, and Senator Andy Billig, he's the majority leader Democrat on this on the Senate, have counted their votes, and they may have enough to pass these initiatives off the floor. They would not bring them forward. So we're going to hear about that in about two weeks or so. Or so they have so. the option of passing these initiatives, so they wouldn't even have to go to the ballot. Correct. They yeah. have to pass it word for word. They can't yep. make any changes to it, or they can provide an alternative and there's been no language no talk of providing an alternative on the ballot so it looks like these three i think the democrats see the writing on the wall mm -hmm. and they may pass them okay what's so, uh, let's get to the pac-12 realignment here yeah now this is what i you know g you and g were talking about this is what i heard during uh, a work session yesterday about this pac-12 realignment about this dire situation that washington state university may be in now the legislature has to say so in this because they're the ultimate authority over these schools since both schools receive state funding. Now, representatives from Washington State and UW talked about past, current, future revenue sources from their football teams. And here's a surprising fact. Did you know, Dave, that only one Pac-12 school 
public school, USC and Stanford are private, was able to cover their intercollegiate expenses last year. Only one, mm-hmm. Oregon. And despite going to the championship game, UW did not. They had to, they went, they spent more than they took in, which is nearly $150 million. Mm-hmm. And they had to dip into their athletic reserves. Now, you, Washington State, on the other hand, really overspent and you know uh you know the comparison was that uh, Ohio State was uh, spent made 250 million dollars last year Washington State made 80 million dollars yeah. last year uh here's Alice Klein Clausen who presented a report about the finances there's currently an arms race in college athletics and every dollar is going to matter for these institutions in order to remain competitive now, she said the media revenue promises that were made was really the disintegration of the conference. Revenue from the Pac-12 has consistently underperformed. When these media deals were signed, the institutions anticipated annual revenues nearing $20 million from the Pac-12 network alone. Those numbers were never realized and fell at least 30% below projections for each year in the last 10 years. So way underpredicted. And wow. so how is you, uh, Washington State going to make up its growing operating debt in its athletic department? Well, using tuition dollars is a possibility. The biennial budget prohibits the use of state appropriations for athletics. But institutions can spend student tuition dollars, as all of the regional universities do in support of their intercollegiate athletic programs, or levy a student fee, as Washington State University has done to fund the stadium renovation. So using tuition that everybody else pays into mm-hmm. to bail out the athletic department, these huge athletic departments, that's really what is a head-scratcher here. When asked about that possibility, Chris Mulick, the school's director of state relations, this is uh, Washington State University, had this to say. WSU has not used any tuition to support intercollegiate athletics, so we could, but we haven't. But Joe Dack on the UW Director of State Relations said this about why UW joined the Big Ten as it relates to tuition. A primary driver in the UW's decision to join the Big Ten was to maintain department operations without charging mandatory student fees or seeking state funds. So to, in the purpose of time, I'm going to skip a couple of sound bites here. Yeah. They, there are hints that the lawmakers may be using some of UW's guaranteed $30 million it's going to receive in the first year of the Big Ten to bail out help out WSU's operating athletic debt. Um, And before, and that's been, there was a precedent because before uh, Cal joined the ACC, the UC Board of Regents, which is a public institution, was concerning a plan requiring UCLA to compensate Cal for leaving the Pac-12. Now, that could happen here. That's what the legislature is thinking about. Also, um, they're talking about reallocating excess revenues from uh, campus housing, dining halls, parking tickets even, to make up for the lost revenue in the athletic department at WSU. Um, he's also, now Mulek also, I'm going to play this soundbite, Dave. Yeah. He also suggests that the athletic department will be forced to cut expenses, and that could include athletic academic support for student-athletes. We're certainly going to have to reevaluate all of the expenditures that we make within athletics, and we do provide academic support for student-athletes, and you know, maybe it is that they end up with support that looks a lot like the student body in mass it gets. Maybe they have and to I focus thought- on academics now. Well, I mean, the fact that, you know, that the student-athletes are going to get the same kind of academic support that the regular person who pays tuition gets. Yeah. So uh, I thought that was kind of a really interesting comment made by him because student athletes, we all know they get special privileges, but now guess what? You, WSU, uh, you're going to be just like everybody else. Matt Markovich. Thank you, Matt. You're welcome, Dave. 
Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at mynorthwest.com.